Hello and welcome to Review, the show where we get to chat to fascinating people from the motoring universe, learning how they got to where they are today. I'm Andrew and on this episode I'm delighted to be joined by Maxine Morland, who is the Managing Editor of Car Design News. Welcome to Review, Maxine. I'd like to start off by asking, what does the Managing Editor do at Car Design News? Hi, so mostly I organise, I write a bit for the website and I do special projects for them. So we do a lot of sort of books and magazines and printed material outside of the website. Um, and that's what I produce. I organise and produce. Um, we do special magazines for car manufacturers, usually about the design department. And we do an annual book called Car Design Review, which is huge and quite weighty. Uh, and we produce that every year. But in addition to that, I also go to the motor shows with Chris, who's the editor, and we cover the motor shows and mm-hmm. divvy up the work between us. We'll explore the many facets <laughs> of that job <laughs> as we go on. But I'd like to go back to the beginning, to the mists of time, about your motoring history. Right. So you, looking at, having done a little bit of research, which will amaze the listeners, you do like quite interesting machinery. When did this start? Probably with my first car when I was... Well, was I 19? Probably, yeah, 19. And I bought for my first car, which will strike you as absolute madness, and it was, was a 1971 BMW 2002. And I bought it because I liked the look of it. (laughs) And I lived in the northwest, and I was doing a variety of jobs which involved a lot of driving at the time. So it was entirely unsuited to... (laughs) what I needed to do I had no money and a load of part-time jobs and it was a brilliant car it broke me financially but it was a brilliant car and mostly it worked and I think it probably started with that and it's kind of the the passion of I loved the car it was all windows it had fantastic visibility it was not very fast but it was a lovely sound and then occasionally it would sort of catastrophically let you down (laughs) The side of the N6 <laughs> at three o'clock in the morning or something. And it sort of started with that. But also at this, around the same time, I got a job with Trials and Motocross News, which was a motorbike magazine, which was my first proper working journalist job. Mm-hmm. I went to a lot of Trials and Motocross events and sort of got quite interested in the slightly geeky side of machines. Well, that is a cracking first car, <laughs> to be fair. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to go go large, as they say, <laughs> or go home. Yeah. <laughs> when you were going through school, was writing, well, it's, it's obviously something that you enjoy, otherwise you wouldn't have pursued it, but was that the thing you wanted to do? No, no, I didn't know what I wanted okay. to do. Did you? I had no idea. No, 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 no. I still <laughs> don't know. No, absolutely not. <laughs> I'm, waiting for, I'm waiting for someone to tell me. <laughs> no, it wasn't. I've always, um, it, it, hindsight's a wonderful thing. I've always been interested in people and stories and... I ended up doing anthropology and linguistics at university, which is people and stories, and then fell into a job on a local newspaper as a part-time job and had a moment of revelation, which was like, ah, I could actually make a career out of this and I get to do people and stories and meaning. And I think that's probably what it is. And actually, I haven't always written about cars. I haven't always worked in cars or motorbikes. I've done other stuff. I've done travel journalism, business journalism. I ran the faith section of the Bermuda Sun for 18 months, like randomly. (laughs) But essentially, it's about meaning and people and cars. So I'm interested in the machinery, but I'm more interested in 
in the stories and the meaning and the cultural aspects of it. There's plenty of stuff out there that will explain, or maybe not explain, but will talk about here is a car and here it is from a functional point mm. of view. Particularly when it comes to design, it's there's not many places that actually delve into why, how this all came yeah. about and what the people's thought processes were and what were the influences and all that sort of stuff. And I, I find that, I find all that sort of stuff fascinating, hence this podcast. Uh, it's chatting to people and finding out what, why they do yeah. what they do and what, what got them interested in it. How long were you doing the motocross? And So I did that for about 18 months. I did Trials and Motocross okay. News, and I was a sub-editor and reporter. What does a sub-editor do? Sub-editor. Well, Excuse my ignorance. <laughs> back in the day, <laughs> we had green, special green pieces of paper that you would physically draw on where the images and where the text would go. So it was pre-desktop oh, okay. publishing. So you would draw it all out and get your word count, and then you'd hand it to the typesetters. You'd already have your image, your pictures, your images assembled, and you'd hand it all mm. over and somebody would put it together. But a sub-editor on the whole is is proofing other people's work, editing it, doing anything the editor tells you, essentially. And it usually involves a bit of writing and a lot of rewriting and a certain degree of tact is required. <laughs> yeah. We've tweaked this slightly because. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And not because I hated it, but because <laughs> then thinking of a valid yeah. reason that won't bruise an ego too much. Yes. Oh, there's been a lot of that over the years, yes. So you did 18 months. Uh, how often did you have to stand in a muddy, cold, wet field? Quite a lot, actually. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you got like, wool-lined wellies yeah, and I did. waterproofs. I quite liked it, though, because I used to do uh, mountain biking. I was quite into sort of downhill oh. mountain biking very briefly during that period of time. A lot of the technology was the same back then. I did a very memorable coverage of the Western Beach Race, which, quite honestly, one of my... The guys I was working with, who was a writer called Sean Lawless, who was a great guy, He'd broken every bone in his body, and he was riding in it. And I hadn't really kind of like, I, I, I thought a beach race, what's that? And they built these huge jumps, I mean, vast jumps out of sand, chucking it down on the beach in Western Supermare. Well, it is Britain. We, we, we can't go to the beach unless it's raining. <laughs> they rode for like hours i mean it was a whole day on these bikes with and of course you get to the top of the lip and the guy in front of you was just spraying sand back into their faces i mean i i had such admiration for him after that and i swore that i would never ride in the western beach race so i only wrote i didn't ride i kind of always <laughs> divvied up with somebody who is a rider but it was fun they were an interesting you know they're in, they were quite obsessive and very specific group of people. It's very niche, it's, isn't it? It's, it's very, niche it's very big in the north. In fact, it's very big around here as well. There's a lot of motocross around here. And I still, you know, I still remember Dougie Lampkin, who was the trials kind of winner at the time. And in fact, one of the um, one of the guys who was uh, a motocross rider at the time settled down here and I bumped into him at a kid's birthday party and had a slight sort of fanboy moment of, oh, my God, you're... I probably shouldn't say who he is, but, yeah, he runs the Honda motocross team down here now. So, yeah, I do. I remember those days very fondly, but I was quite young, and I think I was being paid £8,000 a year. You can live on uh -huh. that in Lancaster in the 90s, yes. just about. Yeah. But I was ambitious, and I'd suddenly sort of realised, and then I thought a relationship fell apart apocalyptically. So I thought, right, I'll move to London and get a job there. And that's when I, I got a job on a trade title that worked in the kind of automotive manufacturing space. Mm -hmm. So made the leap. 
but it was yeah, it was a great job. I really enjoyed it. It was all men, of course. It always is. Obviously, obviously, yeah. They're very nice. <laughs> well, cars or, or, or motors, uh, and then you're niching down from that. It just gets tinier and tinier the proportion of women involved. It must be. I have spent um, my life with people looking at me as I walk into a room going, what What are you doing here? <laughs> yes. Have you, have you got the wrong room? <laughs> yeah. When you moved into the trade publishing side of things, were you still able to explore the people side of things in that because i know it's they're usually a much drier publication oh very much so yeah no very much so because it was sort of the era where the personality uh, where you were doing profiles of individuals and they were trying to raise their profiles and conferences were starting and so just before we all had snapchat exactly instagram twitter so we could control our own message yeah and so I used, to, I used to interview sort of executives. I used to go around car plants quite a lot. And there's always, there'd always be one person who was fielded to explain everything to me. Yeah. And because I'm a girl, they'd explain it in like huge detail. <laughs> as long as you kept quiet, they would absolutely <laughs> explain everything to me on the, on the basis that I probably didn't know anything about it. And I'd just been sort of sent off, which is great. And actually, I've met some fantastic people. I had some um, really lovely tours around plants with people, again, who look just a bit horrified when you turn up, and then sort of get into it, and they tell the story for me. Probably, If I'd been a man, I don't know if it would have been any different, but it probably would have been, actually, because there'd have been an assumption that, that they were supposed to have done their homework or had you know, a certain amount of knowledge. Mm. But with me, people just tend to tell me the story. That is quite handy if you're a journalist. Yeah. Um, I would imagine. <laughs> so how long were you at the trade, the, the automotive trade oh God. publication? Uh, were you working at other places at the same time? Is, no, no, was, so is there overlaps? Are you, you staying on one at a time? It was one, it was one company and we were based out in Hampstead and I was there for quite a long time. I was there for about five or six years and they launched a few sort of associated titles, which I worked on. And it was quite a small company. So you got to do everything and you yeah. got quite a lot of responsibility quite early. So I learned an awful lot. And then after about five or six years, I kind of got to the point, I I was aware that I wasn't learning anything. And I thought it's probably time for a change. And I got a job with Business Traveller magazine, which before it was owned by Euromoney, I think, and went and worked for them as a sub-editor. So chief sub on Business Traveller and wrote wrote a bit for them, Did mostly was doing editing, but did the occasional kind of country story. So I went to Brazil and did a piece about Rio, which was basically... If you are a business traveller going to said place, what do you need to know? And so it was a little okay, bit of yeah. economics. It was a little bit of personal safety <laughs> in Rio in particular. Yeah. Yes, um, quite. <laughs> and it was a sort of, you know, what are the things to do if you're on the ground for two days? You know, what should you go and see? What can you go and see? And the mechanics of it. And then a sort of putting things in context of the historical and economic environment so a bit like Lonely Planet for Business. Yes, exactly. And they used to it used to be given away, I think, on BA and places like you used to find business traveller all over the place. I had a wonderful editor there, a lady called Julia, and she was really sharp. And I learned a lot from her. She was really brilliant. And then I moved to Bermuda. As one does. As one does, yeah. <laughs> I moved to Bermuda and worked for um, the Bermuda Sun, which was the tabloid. <laughs> in Bermuda and ran the faith section and did editing and did their sort of sold area of the newspaper as well, mm-hmm. which was a slight change in, change in tack 
Um, but I moved there because I was living with somebody at the time in London who was a Bermudian and an actuary. And they're about as rare as hen's teeth. And after 9-11, the entire reinsurance industry offshored to Bermuda. And so suddenly he right. became the world's most important person. And somebody offered him a lot of money to go back to Bermuda and um, work as an actuary. And I said I'd go if I could get a job. And I got a job. So off we went. Paradise. And that, <laughs> well, that's what it looks like from here. Yes, it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> no, they never are. They never are. There is always a, a, a not so good side that we never see from the outside. Yeah. <laughs> 18 months you did that. Did you come back after 18 months? I came back, yeah, just shy of two years. Yeah, I came back okay. penniless, jobless, and slightly flailing around. And took me about three months to get my next job, which was in London with the Illustrated London News. So okay. the Illustrated London News um, were, la- were trying to relaunch the Illustrated London News as a monthly. And they took they, but they also had this customer publishing arm that they worked on. So I went and worked there in Sea Containers House in London, which is a fabulous building. And it was owned by a guy called Jim Sherwood at the time, who owned Orient Express Hotels. And I think we did the GNER magazine and Southwest Trains magazine and a lot of supplements about watches rapidly. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. Um, so I worked yeah. tar- I, I've magazine. never got the whole tie-in with watches with lots of <laughs> Horology. magazine. I, I can tell you. Well, yeah. <laughs> as a sub-editor, finding different words to say watch or timepiece <laughs> for an entire magazine <laughs> to challenge the... <laughs> before access to the yes before access to the internet so we had a bank in the old days subs you had a bank of books that you used before the internet was useful and so you had all of the encyclopedias and you had all of the back issues of everything yeah it was great that was fun that was a fun job um and i worked there kind of across various different titles for a couple of years Okay, and then what did you move on to after that? I went back to a company that I'd worked for before, who I now work for again, Ultima Media. I went back and worked for them running a trade magazine about automotive logistics, so supply chain management. So the just-in-time manufacturing type stuff we are hearing quite a bit about at the moment. Yes, yeah, yeah, a lot of supply chain stuff. It was a a fascinating time because they were doing this big shift into just-in-time manufacturing and just-in-time manufacturing requires a very very well organized supply chain and it requires Mm. built runs and you know sort of specific warehousing in specific places in order to enable them to do this just-in-time manufacturing and so that sort of that was all happening at that point and a lot of a lot of people were putting in place completely different manufacturing models for the plants and logistics was sort of racing to catch up with it. And they were also starting to source from Eastern Europe. And, you know, they were sourcing from further away yeah. to put a lot of pressure on on things. I mean, it is absolutely fascinating what happens in car plants. I absolutely do not know how they manage to build cars in that time frame. And logistics is, is why they're able to build cars in that time frame. But nobody's very interested in logistics people. Nobody's very interested in in the kind of warehouse management guys or the, you know, the delivery drivers or the you know the guy that sits in a shed somewhere scheduling deliveries but i i found that quite interesting (laughs) 
I used to work in logistics and the the key to everything happening is logistics, but people just they don't want to talk about just it. Just think, oh well, it, it it'll happen, and then get incredibly cross with you if it doesn't. And you just go, well, we have been saying for quite a while this doesn't work. Yes. <laughs> what I, I can't produce miracles. Yes. <laughs> oh, and then they start to you know if you if you stop a production line, then people start to pay attention, and then, yeah. and then they start to listen. But yeah, it is it's it's all it is amazing how many cogs have to be in the right place at the right time to make for a car to come out, be spat out the other end yes. of a production line and go onto a transporter. Cause then, then we're in logistics again, cause it then has to get taken somewhere. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Nobody ever talked to the logistics. So when they said, Oh, let's, you know, let's source this wiring harness from Czechoslovakia or Slovakia. Nobody ever really considered that actually it's a very complicated and kind of late stage piece to assemble. And, and you physically can't get it from A to B without perhaps flying it, at which point you yep. then obviated all of the costs of sourcing it yep. in Slovakia in the first place. And I thought it was, you know, the absence of communication between departments within car manufacturers I've always found quite fascinating. And it's particularly so. Business, though, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. So after the logistics side of things, what did you move on to? So then I got ma- I got married and slightly unexpectedly had a baby very quickly. And so I ended up moving down to the West Country, moving out of London, and mm-hmm. effectively went freelance for a few years. So that sort okay. of changed the, the dynamic of what I was doing. And I was working on logistics stuff on a freelance basis, but did other stuff. So did a gardening course in horticulture and started writing a bit for gardening magazines, which I enjoyed. But I have to say, the pay is shocking. <laughs> um, <laughs> Considering how much money goes, people spend on gardening. I know. But people it's, it's something that people are very passionate about. And so I, I think they get a lot of people writing for free. So it's difficult to make mm. a, a living as a freelancer. But I did meet some really interesting people doing that. I met a garden designer called Piet Udolf, who was a fascinating man, who did um, the Hauser and Worth garden in Somerset. And, he also, and that's what I was writing about but he's also done the High Line in New York and various other gardens. His, his design and planting is absolutely beautiful. Um, so I sort of did a bit of everything and started writing for websites and started, I mean, God, I've written for, you know, estate agency websites. I've, copy, I've done a lot of copywriting mm-hmm. in the logistics, manufacturing, and just anybody who wants it. <laughs> space did you find it difficult transition from working in an office to working from home no not really not really no was was it is it the same sort of ethos anyway it's the same sort of ethos but also it was difficult when when nobody had broadband but actually now broadband's been Mm. around for enough time for you to be able to remote work fairly effectively so you can kind of you can look at exactly the same thing as you look at in the office and as long as the people that I'm directly working with are capable of picking up a phone and are happy to talk to me, which they are on the whole, it's made, it's made that side of things much easier. I found the writing, I found just sitting at home writing, I found that a bit lonely <laughs> because I quite like meeting people. And I found sitting in a kind of garret writing, you know, I was pairing every pair of socks in the house before I'd actually sit down and write the damn article. <laughs> and so from a motivation point of view i like both i like being able to work in an office environment but also work remotely so that family and life continues yeah i think if, i don't i don't understand how anybody could sort of sit in an office and write a book from start to finish i'm not sure that i've got the 
mental resilience to do that. I need I need interaction with people. Otherwise, I go a bit mad. <laughs> yeah, but uh, as you say, technology today means you could you can just Skype in with someone and stuff like that. Yeah, um, and but also it, it's, it's obviously not the same as going and making a cup of coffee in the tea room with someone and having just a chin wag and just, no. you know, oh, there's a human being. I've talked to them about yes. nothing to do with this, and then I did gone back get and to know my posting very well though. My postie's lovely. You know? <laughs> <laughs> On occasion, we talk for you know twenty minutes. <laughs> I should probably shouldn't say that. I might get fired. Um, yeah, and employers so, have changed, um, haven't they? Employers are now you know as long as they trust you and you're getting the work done, they, they seem happy to, to be flexible about well, where, you're, where you're working, which is great. If an employer decides we're going to look at results rather than how long your bottom is in a chair, yeah, then it's much easier to do this sort of stuff. I mean, yeah. as you said, most places have the technology to be able to do it or, uh, enough of the technology that someone could you know pop to starbucks to be able to connect up to upload a massive file or something like that and still do stuff at home uh, with occasional trips into the office i mean i think we have to look at it from a society point of view anyway if we're going to try and reduce congestion yeah is the hot topic at the moment and how awful it is to get anywhere that's urbanized yeah because there's just so much traffic, and um, that this is this has to be one of the many things that are brought in at once to try and fix the problem. Yeah, because it's it's not all going to be public transport, and it's not all going to be banning the car, and we're not all going to do it through ride sharing. No, you know, we have to. There's many different aspects that have to be thought about. I love so. the idea of trying to find a ride share from Langford Budville. <laughs> well, I mean that's the other oh, thing. Oh. A lot of this stuff that we hear comes from the bubble of london yeah and things are it, from that perspective things are easy I, if i lived in london i wouldn't own a car no it, it's just so hard to yeah. <laughs> so hard to have a car in london i wouldn't bother yeah um, but i don't i live in a semi-rural area and so i need a car yeah <laughs> there is one taxi firm in this town that's it <laughs> and there is a bus sort of service yeah <laughs> you know and i'm not even out in the sticks yeah where they get two buses a week. Yeah. <laughs> that's a way to run your life. You know, <laughs> if you miss that bus, that's it. Yeah. No milk. <laughs> uh, anyway, sorry, I digress onto one of my hobby horses. Uh, <laughs> so was it about now that you started working with Car Design News or was that a little bit later? Yes, it was. Yeah, yeah, it was about that time. They had, so Car Design News is traditionally obviously a website and they'd started doing this annual book, which was a kind of roundup of everything that's happened in the car design world with a top 10 concept and production cars, which are voted mm-hmm. for by design directors in the industry. And so they were assembled. Oh, okay. And they'd done, I think they'd done two, and they were using out-of-house resources to do it. But had, I, don't, I just don't think it kind of got to grips with it or didn't feel that they'd got to grips with it sufficiently in-house. And, and it was, you know, it's a big job. So I was taken on to do that. And they'd also got, they had a big project come in with um, Nissan to do two magazines for Nissan. And they just needed somebody, I think, with a bit of a print background who could pull it all together and put it in the right order. So I worked with the then editor, Owen, quite closely to, you know, he was obviously in charge of deciding the content. And I would commission, put it all together, um, get it to a printer's, get it prototyped, all that sort of stuff. To project manage. So I was project, yeah, I was project work. managing it. 
mostly. Okay. And then as that became a bigger part of what Car Design News was doing, it's increased in scope. And I've learned more. I mean, every single one we do is completely different. It's they're I hate the word bespoke, but I'm going to use it. <laughs> they are bespoke projects from the beginning. So each each year is different. Yeah, yeah. From from looking at what designers or what companies bring out design wise, each year is different. So that from that point of view, it has to be different anyway. Yeah. And then I would imagine that the there isn't that well, you you've explained that, but the, there isn't that look. It has to be this way every time. Yeah. It, you've got the chance to explore and try something different and yeah. things like that and tweak around. So, yeah, it's, it's never going to be. It's never the well, same. One would hope it's never the same. Yes, yeah, and it's fun. You know, we, I spend a lot of time talking to printers and printers are, are very good at explaining what is possible. You know, if you tell them what you want, they will give you a price for it. But actually, if I say, right, this is the idea, what do you think? Yeah. They often come up with some quite fun stuff, not gimmicks, but, you know, we've had to do quite complicated, specially engraved on certain material covers that have to be hand um, glued onto the book, you know, which the printers had never done before and the binders had never done before. And so the whole process has to be prototyped because, of course, yeah. everything has to go to Geneva, doesn't it? Absolutely everything <laughs> is always for Geneva. Um, <laughs> so everything's <laughs> happening in February and January. And so it, it, I, I do like that learning process of it's a bit of panic at the beginning when I'm kind of like, what do you mean we have to cover it with velvet? And then as you go through it, it's actually quite fun because you learn loads and loads of stuff about a part of the business that I would never have learned that working at a contract publishing magazine. And I've learned a lot about book binding. <laughs> <laughs> More than you ever needed. Yeah. You felt you needed. Yes. No, it's great. It keeps it fresh. How far in advance of, just for example, I'll pull out uh, Geneva, just just as a random example. How far in advance of Geneva do you need to have that all together? For a book which can be mechanically bound and not hand bound, you need mm-hmm. to have sent the book to print by about the 13th of February for next year, for, for Geneva next year. For a magazine, you can push that you can push that forward possibly to sort of the mid twenties of February, but you're, you're getting tight on timings. Then you have to allow a week for print, a week for delivery on the whole, and you can speed that up, but the books are are more complicated. And if you have to hand bind the book, then yeah, you can get 50 hand bound in 10 days and delivered. But um, (laughs) yeah, well, tell me what you need. <laughs> I'll give you a spec. And it depends on who you're working with. You know, different printers have different processes. But we have a few that I have a that we have a relationship with that I kind of understand yeah. the timings and they're quite they're quite clear on it. No, but it's interesting to know how how well planned you need to be. Yes. You know, you this is the this is the deadline and this really is the deadline. It's yes. not one of these movable feasts, everybody. And that's that's because that's so print. much stuff happens on well, that's it. So much stuff happens on the internet that oh well, it's a bit fluid. I can do it at two in the morning type thing. Yeah. Well, no, because there isn't a courier here that's going to take this all away or bring it into us or whatever it is. Yeah. So yeah, it is what it is. It, this is the date. End of story. Yes, I spend my life devising schedules in the hope and expectation <laughs> that we're going to hit them. 
<laughs> whilst building in wiggle room. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I always build in wiggle room. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> With the the website side of things, what what is it you're doing on there? So I write for car design. Yeah. yeah, I write for it, and I I sort of join in the planning meetings and the. The, the, the planning meetings in a conceptual sense, um, it's got the website's got its own editor and it's got its own writer who's sort of quite junior. And then it's got a bank of freelancers that it uses. Uh-huh. But I tend to go to the most, I tend to go to the same events for reasons that are to do with what I'm doing. Often I'm interviewing people for the book, perhaps. Yeah. And then I'll interview the same person about the car that they're launching at said motor show. And so I'll write for that. And occasionally, um, you know, we're a small company and Car Design News has got a few people kind of in-house. And you can't, you know, if, if, if one person had to go to every single event and show, they would never go home. So I spent a week in China, in Shanghai, kind of trotting around, talking to people about what's going on there in the car design world. So I did, I generated quite a lot of material for the website about China, but also for other products that we have at Car Design News. So I participate in the forward planning. I help with writing for the website, actually mainly is what I do. And when we do kind of reviews of not just the content, but the the mechanics of how the back end of the system works and things like that, I participate in those. But it's got a very competent editor, Car Design News. So I'm a resource for him to use as and when he needs to. And a lot of the time Mm -hmm. that's at motor shows. No, because you were at motor show recently, weren't you? I'm sure I saw something on on Twitter, yeah, you were Paris. in Paris. Yeah. I met Cesario yeah. in Paris. Oh, God, tell you how excited that's I was. It. That's what I think. I remember there was a picture of you. Yes, that's it. Yeah, I was very excited at that moment. <laughs> <laughs> well, who wouldn't be? Yeah. Come on. <laughs> when you're editing, what are you looking at with the piece of work? How how do you approach editing? Um, it depends what the purpose is for. If it's for the website, it is to create something very compelling in the first paragraph and to put together a package of compelling images and text in a way that is appropriate for a website and then the kind of associated social media marketing and information about that. So I'm thinking about what, you know, what for our, for our readership who are mostly car designers and students, what are they interested in with this story? And I'm, you know, I'm slightly old school in that it's about flow and it's about storytelling and, and a lot of people write in a very factual way because they're worried about getting things wrong, particularly people who aren't journalists themselves. So it's maybe just sort of smoothing the flow a bit. And um, with foreign language interviews, it's slightly taking out the the grammatical mannerisms of when you've translated from one language to another and making it flow okay. slightly better. It's presenting it in its best way. For print, it's... It's it's the same. Um, you have a bit more time to work on it, but it's it's also very much about the layout for print. So it's which image, you know, what is this page going to look like? What's how are we going to present this? Do you when you're looking at photographs, are you looking to represent the overall story or specific aspects of the story when you're specific writing? aspects usually? So if it's okay. if it's a story about an individual. I will look, for, I will have had, often I have photography done of them myself, which I commission and I send a photographer and will go with them. And so I have the portraiture that I need because I've commissioned it and I know what I'm looking for. And it's a, it's something that speaks to their personality and doesn't, you know, it's not about the car. 
It's about them. Okay. But then I will have looked through their history and I will understand which cars they've worked on, which designs they've worked on, which is, you know, what's the big thing that's either in their past or what they're about to present, which is about them. It's not necessarily a sketch by them. It's something that speaks to to their overall view of the world and their view of their job. Okay. Um, and then I'll present those images alongside the text talking about the same things. Because I'm just very curious about that. Because I've found recently, I found a new genre of photography that I think is absolutely fantastic, which is car designers being photographed. Oh. Because some of the poses some of them pull out are superb to, yes. to look it's at. It's disappointing. There's a lot of power power stances going on sometimes. Yeah, yeah. It's up there because I used to work in architecture. And I remember when certain architects would be photographed, and it's very similar to that. Yes. That this I I want to be seen in a particular style and yes. pose. Yeah, <laughs> that yeah. is brilliant. If you've I love got it. a good photographer, Andrew, and I, you know, we're lucky enough that we've got we've got a really good set of photographers now, not just in the UK but kind of everywhere. And if you've got a good photographer and you give them a commission and a good brief, they can they can pull something really good out of the bag usually. And you know, photography is not cheap in terms of, you know, the kind of stuff that we're doing. So I have very high expectations of the photographers, and I give them a brief and a commission beforehand, but their mm. interpersonal skills are what, are what, quite apart from their artistic skill, their interpersonal skills are really important because they can stop that happening. They can stop the ridiculous and the pompous, and they can actually get to the heart of the matter yeah. quite effectively. Well, that, that must be one of the key things of portrait photographers actually being serious for a second here is from my side uh, is that you have to get someone to open up yeah and so you have to be able to speak to someone it is not a case of hiding behind a lens yes and just taking a gazillion photos and hoping one turns out all right yeah you've really got to be able to get someone to relax and maybe not necessarily enjoy the process but not be intimidated or dislike it yes yeah, and it is and a skill. That I, it is a massive, that is it is tricky. A, an underrated skill because everybody thinks they can take pictures. They really, you know. Well, we've all got a phone, haven't we? So <laughs> we've all got we're, a... we're all experts. I often find as well, I often accompany photographers. So I'll do the interview um, kind of on the same day. And you can, you, can, you can kind of work together to create a level of distraction and chat and that helps the photographer. So I can be the person, you know, making them smile, asking questions, you know, talking to yeah. them from a specific direction, putting them at ease in a, you know, in a, in a, in a certain place. But actually, you know, a lot of the time the photographers do it by themselves and they're mm -hmm. the good ones are worth their weight in gold. Yeah. It really shows, you know, the product, the yeah. products that we've got that have used good photographers, what I would consider really good photographers. It really shows. It makes a huge difference. It absolutely just transforms the project well that's what you pay the money for you it's not just the clicking of a button it's yeah. the it's the whole package and people sometimes in whatever creative field don't appreciate that yeah you know they'll, they'll just look at the end result and go well it was just this it's yeah just, no it's never just this yeah it's everything to get to that yeah. that you can make that pithy sort of dis almost dismissive comment about it yeah. you know it is not someone just going walking past flicking the phone out and going oh there i'll go yeah, yeah, yeah. walking off it's not that it, it's never that no and the people who who read the stuff that we produce are designers 
you know, they're mm. very, very, very well versed in visual communication. They are yeah. exceptionally, their attention to detail is far higher than mine. And so actually, if you cut corners, it shows and they notice uh, quite straightforwardly. Do they then get in touch? Yes, lots of times. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, it's never, I don't produce stuff and then it just sort of like wings, it, it wings its way to the printers. I, I'm in constant communication with a lot of people a lot of the time about because they're visual this is their whole world it's not just a picture of them it's often there's often the car you know the, the model that they're working on or the the prototype that we've shot and that is their work that's us presenting their work and they you know they, they notice if there is a stray wire hanging down underneath the the concept that was parked up in the studio you know and things like that and i totally appreciate that i'm perfectly happy with you know getting somebody to photoshop that out frankly and make it acceptable yeah, yeah, because yeah. somebody Absolutely. didn't notice it on the day yeah yeah what interests you in car design what interests me in car design is it the overall is it specific details is it everything combination <laughs> i'm visually attracted to certain cars i have to say most of them are older cars that resonate with me more mm-hmm. but i'm interested in car design because i'm interested in the people who do it for starters yeah. I find them quite fascinating and the reasons that they do it and the processes that they use to achieve it. But I'm also, I'm just interested, I'm interested in the meaning. I'm interested in, you know, what are we saying about ourselves with this vehicle? What are we saying about society with this vehicle? And it's all in there. Do you believe it does tie in? Because that was going to be another of my questions, actually. Do you believe that the car is a representation of society's of society sorry not of of society i think it's you know there are people in a design department whose whole lives have been creating aspects of this car and pulling it all together and they are reflected they are absorbing the influences of the world around them that they live in specifically wherever they live and that's being distilled into the choices that they make at every single process of building that car and I think, it, yeah, and there are material considerations, there are commercial considerations that always come into play. There are platforms that you have to adhere to. Say you've just copyrighted a particular folding of metal machine, something like that, perhaps. Yes. <laughs> yeah, you, you're going to maybe use that quite yeah. a bit. Yeah. <laughs> but it, but it, a lot of, you know, a lot of the, the Nissan designs that came out last year, a lot of the concepts that they launched since um, Albaisa took over, They've been exploring, they've clearly been exploring their Japanese heritage. And they it's not in a in a sort of pat, like let's stick some Japanese stuff on the car. They've been exploring techniques and ways of working and ideas and visual ideas and philosophical ideas and religious ideas. And they and that has through the sort of filter of going through a load of young car designers working in that particular studio turned into something incredibly beautiful and i do find that process fascinating and and you know the wider world may not you know look at that car and understand all of those meanings but that doesn't necessarily matter you know beautiful objects and beautiful cars in particular speak to people and they don't understand why it's not just about that the face looks like a smiling frog or you know we have an instinctual reaction to cars and products and designs but cars are a very particular sort of vehicle of freedom Mm. And I rather love that. So what that. does the SUV say of us today, then? That, <laughs> well, how shall I put this? What does the SUV say? That everybody wants to be prepared for all eventualities. I think that's okay. what the SUV says. 
And in London, the SUV says, you know, I want a big barrier between me and the rest of the world because I'm frightened. I don't think it's necessarily an aggressive act. I think it's a... My uneducated opinion on this is that it's a retreat and a, a it's like pulling up the drawbridge. Yes, we, yeah, there these is. people would have had castles back in the day. Yeah. And they'd have pulled the drawbridge up and gone, I'm safe in here now. Yes. Yeah. For you know, whether that's true or not, but that's the perception yes. to them is they're safe. I think safe. it's quite a sad am... thing actually. I do I... No, I do. I absolutely do, yeah. It's less engagement with the world around you. We all seem to be thinking of us rather than looking in rather than looking out. Yes. Yeah, well, all those well, pillars, across the globe. pillars are so big, yeah, you can't see out anyway. <laughs> well, no, yes. <laughs> I know that one. <laughs> what do you think, when, when, or more probably the better way to put this would be, how do car designers deal with the fact that they'll, put a, they'll work on a design for a lot of time, there'll, there'll be many reiterations of this, and then it gets put on a stand, and then someone will make a one-word review of it basically how do they deal with the fact that the all this time goes into something it is produced and it's not like you can go back it's okay i can just delete a little bit out and redraw that or something because it's it's physical how how do they have particular mechanisms to cope with the fact that when they put it out there that's it it is it is there no, I don't think they've got mechanisms to cope with it any more than anybody else does. I think criticism is difficult to take no matter what sphere you're in. I, I think I think that Twitter is particularly bad for people making on-spot judgments about other people, other things, other philosophies, other religions. But it, you should probably just ignore it because not everybody's going to like everything all the time. There are a couple of there are a couple of well, there's one company in particular that's come in for a specific bashing in the last two years, probably. And I, I don't think that the designers involved in that, I hope they don't, I hope they don't obsessively read all of that criticism. I really do. Because actually, you know, you wouldn't, if somebody was exhibiting a piece of art, you wouldn't walk into the art gallery and say to the artist's face, that's rubbish. See, I edited myself there for your children. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> That's rubbish, that is. But Twitter's social media gives you a sort of distance and anonymity that people feel they can speak their mind more, you know, without repercussions. I don't think they do have a filter for it. I think they feel it more keenly than anyone. But they wouldn't necessarily talk to me about it because I'm a journalist. Mm. Well, yes. <laughs> yeah. We must have guards up. <laughs> but I do, I do. On occasion, I look at those storms and they're usually on Twitter and I just think, oh, really? <laughs> Because the thing that interests me a lot on on the Twitter, and yeah, I totally agree with you that Twitter is a, a, a wonderful mechanism for a snap judgment. I've noticed recently that when cars get put out there for us to see, the public, the Joe Public side of Twitter that I follow will say one thing, and the car designery side of Twitter will generally say something completely opposite. Oh, that's and I find that fascinating yeah. to watch, generally. I mean, uh, the um, well, I'm trying to think of some examples of it. But, but talking of changing minds, but the Giulietta was one that I changed my mind. When it first came out, I was not a fan of it yeah. at all. And then I've seen, well, first of all, I've seen them, so that helps. Yeah. I've not just looked at a picture 
on Twitter on my phone. So let me give it a bit more appreciation. There are a few things on it that still annoy me immensely, but that's detail things that I do get bent out of shape. Yeah. Like I can't remember which Mark Focus fuel filler cap that didn't line up at all. Anything to do with the light that still would wrap around the side. It? it send I'm I'm I've threatened Alan that I'm gonna start an Instagram account of details I hate. <laughs> And just when I see them, I'll photograph them and just post them, and then I'll feel better probably. <laughs> but it's, I don't understand how that got through. When, when and this is maybe a, something you could answer. When it goes through the process of a car design that they do, and then something is looks so glaringly wrong to us, how does that get through the system? It, Every bit must be signed off, surely. Yes, but just because it looks wrong to us, it doesn't mean that it's wrong. I mean, I remember when the Audi TT came out, and I hated it. I absolutely hated it. I thought, what on earth is that? It looks like a ridiculous, you know, what, what, what on earth are they thinking? Um, mm. And now I look at them, and I think it's gorgeous. You know, yeah, I think that, yeah, that, that has our, aged Our designers well. live in a future world that we don't inhabit, and often, mm. actually, my taste catches up with what they were designing sort of 10 years ago suddenly looks absolutely compelling to me but it's i think it's because i'm out of sync not because you know well we're looking at the now yeah as you said they're looking ahead you say and maybe that's part of their mechanism is like you don't get it now but yeah you but will. you will yeah yeah or maybe that maybe that's what they can or they just have leftover filler caps <laughs> that they have to use up <laughs> well yeah it was it, there was going to be i i'm old enough now to know these things that it's going to be a combination of what would work what they could financially afford blah 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 you know because i could see as as the marks went through that the design changed around there and stuff like that yeah but it just it's things like now because i am that sort of person i look at shut lines and i look at panel joints and i sort of go but if it had just done that and then you gotta go no no come on it's because the tools they've got at the time couldn't do that yeah or you know it's not someone has just gone oh that'll do i am presuming here no one no one ever goes on yeah. a car it's all right it, whatever you know it's not the late yeah. or mid mid 90s anymore where we had some shockers foisted on us when it seemed that there was well the public will buy this it doesn't matter <laughs> Yeah, although I'm starting to find mid-90s designs quite compelling as well. I don't know what's wrong with me. I'm going into a phase of looking at mid-90s cars and thinking, oh, gosh, that's lovely, isn't it? Well, some of the more obscure ones are all right. It's the It was the very mainstream ones for me that I, no, thanks, I don't need to. But tell you sometimes again. look at very ugly cars, very traditionally sort of ugly cars and become slightly obsessed with them. I do. I mean, I, I absolutely, and on occasion, like properly ugly cars, sort of just they're compelling they're compelling objects and you do you start to figure out so what was what were things like that they, that this fitted in what did everything look mm. like what were people doing how did this fit into people's lives and then you you know you start thinking about how did this ever happen <laughs> <laughs> but that issue that you raise about the sort of the criticism when cars are released one thing i've really noticed recently is that, that I mean, a lot of what I do is enabling the design departments to tell the stories of of what they've done and why they've done it in quite specific detail on occasion. We did a, mm. a piece about the a magazine about the S90 when Volvo launched the S90, which was sort of the first in that wave of new designs that came out, which are utterly beautiful. And, yes. you know, you, I, I've seen a few recently driving around 
and they do. They look absolutely stunning, and the interiors are fantastic and beyond anything that anybody else was doing at that period of time. But they got to tell their story through us. They got to tell in quite, you know, some detail what the thought process, what they were looking at, what, who they were interested in, you know, which particular sportswear designers they were wearing at the time and how all of that fed into it. And they can control that, you know, they can kind of get their message out there. But I think often by the time it's, by the time the car has gone to a marketing department to market to the public, that story has become largely irrelevant because, yeah. you know, traditionally the, the story that the designers have come up with has not been of interest to the public. You know, it's only relatively yeah. recently that that started to become a kind of brand differentiator. And they've stopped doing it at those shows. And I think it might be the airtime that they get if they gather gather a whole load of car journalists together and take them to a studio and explain to them one on one what they've done and why they've done it, the sto- the message, you know, the story of the actual story of the car or the model seems to get through, seems to filter through a bit more. Like with the Volvo 360, they did that, and that message, you know, okay, it got turned into what was it? You know, airlines are dead. <laughs> You're going to get into a Volvo 360. And that, and that was the sort of, that was the show stopping headline, but actually the ideas behind it sort of filtered through. But that was the first time that I think someone actually did a good job at selling a, what an autonomous vehicle could be. Yes. But that was because they didn't do it. They did it themselves. You know, they got everybody to come to the studio yeah. And they talked them through it one on one and put them in VR goggles and um, showed them in in augmented reality the the experience and talked people through it and then sent them home again. And if that had been a demoter show, it would have been too busy. You wouldn't have had time. There wouldn't have been enough people available to do the demonstrations. You know, the message wouldn't have got across. It would just be the sort of snapshot of what the car looked like on the outside. That's not the most interesting thing about it. No, but 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 with other companies, they they've they've sold it with oh, we're going to make things more convenient. Your general life, you'll be able to work longer because you can work on the way into work. <laughs> Please stop saying that. Really, do stop saying that because that is not a selling point <laughs> to anyone but a business. Because <laughs> you know, no worker wants to know. Oh, thankfully, I can do an extra two hours a day yes. <laughs> on email. You know, because we <laughs> nobody needs that. So, but this was. Because uh, I'd had a, we've had a special edition on a while ago now, and Nir Khan mentioned this. Yes, he. That's one of the ways he thought that autonomous vehicles could make a big difference. Was you get in your car after a day's meeting in New York, you fall asleep in it, and you wake up in somewhere elseville that you're going to have your meetings the next day. Yes, it actually, for the first time for me, sold the idea of an autonomous vehicle that made sense. Yes. It's very clever. Mm. You know, a lot of that Volvo design team spend a lot of their lives in airports. <laughs> and I think that's probably <laughs> why, because actually going through airports, you know, on a, every two days is intensely stressful and such a waste of time, you know, the yeah. security checks and all the rest of it. But, you know, that's just my, uh, nobody's told me that. <laughs> it's just my theory. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's, it's a new approach to kind of revealing what the future might look like and it isn't and there are other interesting approaches to it as well you know the idea sometimes you see these people have come up with renders futurologists have come up with renders of what cities could look like and i find those quite fascinating when you start thinking about what cities could what urban environments could look like 
if you don't have yeah. to have a car sitting on the street outside waiting for you to come out and get into it, if you can summon cars, if cars can park themselves, if the, they don't need to be parked somewhere that people have access to, you know, all of these yeah. things could transform our environment probably in quite a good way. But it, it's going to require such a massive shift by the people planning, yes, the people developing, and us as the general public in how we do things. And, I mean, again, I worked in architecture, so I've seen plenty of these. And this is how this community will now look after yes, we the, install yes, this building. Right. And you go, that's fantastic, <laughs> but that's not how Bolton is going to look yes. in 18 months, <laughs> no matter how hard you try, because there's a bright orange thing in the sky. Yeah. So show it realistically, you know, on a grim February. Yes. You know, what's it going to look like then? Because that's the reality. Yeah. And that's what, you know, if you can lift that, yeah. you're doing a superb job. Because yeah. there was uh, some of the, I think, Jaguar Land Rover have released some images. They worked with some architects um, recently. And I live near Liverpool. And they showed, one of the particular ones they showed was of um, a dock that's got a hotel on it. And they showed a lot of water sport activity and what would be superb if you yes superb if you happen to be i don't know in the med yes. uh the red sea or somewhere warm yes but there is no way because <laughs> it's the irish sea out there that's yeah, chilly that no matter what time of the year it is <laughs> but i but i like the idea that they're uh, at least exploring it and maybe starting a conversation yeah you know removing my sarcasm from that and trying not to just do twitter on a podcast with <laughs> the media thoughts but do you think anyone is has particularly got a handle on autonomous vehicles and their design yet i think lots of people probably have but i probably don't know about it i think volvo are telling a very compelling story at the moment and hand in hand with that i think probably geely also mm-hmm are on the same lines. I think the Chinese are probably streets ahead of us, if I'm honest. I think that they're, okay. they are, in terms of the technology and the ability to execute the technology, probably going to be ahead of Europe and America, definitely America, but probably ahead of Europe as well. I think, I mean, I think it's still a long way away, isn't it? I mean, people sort of talk about it in times of 2030, but I don't think, I, honestly, I cannot see that the technology will work in that time frame. The only way I can see that happening is if there's dedicated areas where no human drivers can be. Yes. Yeah. What do you think of or, Tesla? Or humans. What do, you what do I think of Tesla's um, autonomous activities? I think it's farcical. It's a publicity stunt. Yeah. If you say it, it makes it so. If you say it. So if you talk to the general public, they say, oh, no, but Tesla already, already has Yep. Oh no. If, if you if you talk about auto, an autonomous vehicle that can drive itself, Tesla is probably the first name that Joe Public comes out with. Yeah. If I if I mention it on the school gates or someone asks me in the school gates, that's the name they say. Yeah. The power of marketing. Yes, in all its many forms. <laughs> I will stop myself there because our legal budget isn't that big. <laughs> Right. Okay. Well, I've got one last question on this side of things before I want to go into your car history or your vehicle history. Actually, okay. I'm not. I don't want to just keep this to cars, if that's okay. Mm-hmm. So, because I know I'm taking up so much of your time here. How does a trend get started in car design? Is it the designers, or is it what makes something a trend? 
It's a good question. I think I think that the people working within the studio are absorbing influences from around them, whether that's Yokohama or whether it's Shanghai or whether it's Gothenburg or whether it's London. I think that they're, they're very observant people on the whole, designers, and they spend quite a lot of their time watching the world around them, as well as studying historic designs. And I think that they, I think that there is sort of zeitgeist, there's a zeitgeist element to it in that a group of people with similar interests sitting in a specific place and talking to each other every day and working with each other generate generate a set of meanings and a set of visual cues that work together. But also they've often been to university together. You know, they've often gone through the same design courses. And then if you end up living in the same city and drinking in the same coffee shops in the same part of town or you know, you're picking up on the same cues around them. So it comes from the world around them. It comes from youth culture, almost certainly, mm-hmm. and architecture and street culture and fashion design. And then it, it sort of gets absorbed and filtered into the system. I think that's how it works. Does the fact that that globalization has, because we can see what everybody else is doing around the world, do you think that has made a trend catch on quicker? Possibly. Possibly, but I don't know. I honestly don't know. Or, or is it possibly the fact that, for example, there's there's a lot of European designers who went out to the Far East and you can see some of that reflection on designs coming back this way now? Yeah, it's possibly that. I don't actually think it is so much that. I think it's um, it's a bit like fashion design. You know, Every year we, we kind of try and decide what we sit down and decide what are the trends for car design for the year. And you kind of look back and it always surprises me. Like there, there are obviously some trend colors, for instance, because we see them in cars, in concept cars. Please make it green. Please make it green. I can't Please tell you what it is. It's a secret. <laughs> no, I know you can't tell me, but <laughs> um, just not white anymore. No, I, I, I some... really dislike white anyway. <laughs> but there are key things that kind of crop up like carpets in cars. You know, that started last year, shag pile carpets and that lovely sort of brown veneer wood that you used to have in your nan's drawing room in the 1970s. You know, has been kind of reinterpreted and presented in a different way. And there's this sort of like mahogany, sort of dark wood and brass gentlemen's clubs has been absorbed and spat out in a different format in a highly kind of advanced technological car. And it, I, I think often it's it's themes that, that represent things like reassurance and, you know, this is solid, this is... Um, prestigious this is traditional at the same time as doing these huge technological leaps so i think that people are drawing on a whole range of cultural cues which we all understand mm-hmm. and they do tend to all kind of coalesce at the same time but then some companies just do completely mad things that are out of the out of sync with everybody else which doesn't make any sense in the in kind of you know and i think that's also rather wonderful but i think it's geographical i think it's studios it's studios working together it's groups of people in studios, sort of sparking off each other and the and the world that they see around them, their direct environment. I have tons more questions, but I'm, I'm very conscious I'm taking your time. So I want to move on to your vehicle history, please, now. Right. So you start out with the BMW 2002. Yes. Okay. Um, how do you... Uh, how do you top that with your next vehicle? I didn't. I went rapidly downhill. <laughs> so... It, <laughs> 
it broke me. Uh, the cylinder head gasket went, and um, I couldn't afford to pay the repair without selling the car. And actually, it was a it was a seminal moment. That it was a kind of moment of growing up. So I sold the car and paid the garage bill, and then I bought a hideous, hideous. It was so sensible. It was like the absolute opposite. It was a Fiesta, fourth generation Fiesta. 1.25 or something in burgundy and it sucked the soul out of me i absolutely hated that car from the first moment that i got into it it was so sensible and it worked and it did everything that i needed it to do but i, I just hated it from the first even when i bought it i hated it but i thought i was being practical and i thought i was being sensible and that i had to do this because i didn't earn very much money and i sold it four months later because i hated it so much <laughs> and i I will never have another. <laughs> and then I was in London, so you don't really have cars in London. I didn't no. have cars in London. I had a, I got a Honda Cub when I was in Bermuda to get around, and that was fun. Um, <laughs> and then sort of the, the accumulation of cars, the silting up of my house with cars, really probably started about 12 years ago, 15 years ago. Unfortunately, my husband is also... <laughs> He's also slightly obsessed with old cars, machinery, aeroplanes, tractors. So the two of us are an absolute nightmare with no impulse control. You know, they'll send me things from eBay, you know, sort of like, look at this. And if it's a weak moment, I'll kind of go, how much? <laughs> and then, and then, yes, we have another vehicle. But we love them all, actually. And they all, so we've got... We've got a lot. We've got too many cars. I will accept that we have got too many cars. There's but no not. such thing. There is no <laughs> such thing as too many cars. But I don't use them all all the time. And my attitude to uh, environmentalism, I need to get this on the record, is that I use <laughs> my cars till they die. You know, I I keep them going for. I don't ever sell a car, apart from the Fiesta was the last one I sold. I will use them until they die or I die, and I will off-road them occasionally when I can't afford to run them or fix them. And then I rotate them back into service. And we do tend, we did sell one actually. We sell, we sold the Turbo R because we had to buy a boiler and we couldn't afford it. But we've actually now slightly obsessively gone back and bought exactly the same Turbo R back from the guy <laughs> we sold it to and sort of brought it home. And so I don't run them all all the time. They're not fuel efficient. They're not kind of low emissions vehicles. But I don't do a lot of miles in them. To be honest, I don't. You know, I get on the train to go to London to work. Mm. But we we only use we use them for their entire life cycle. Let's put it that way. We don't trade okay. up. We don't hire purchase. I, I don't buy new cars, which I probably shouldn't admit to in a public forum. <laughs> I can't afford it. You can afford no. a new car. What else? Have you, what, have, what have you got in your vast paddock? So I've got, what have I got? I've got a range, an old range, old shape Range Rover, not the old, old mm -hmm. shape, but the L322 from 2005, which had hideous, okay. hideous electrical problems for about five years. But we've got through that now, and, and now it seems all right. And that's a brilliant car, sort of slab-sided, old enough now that people don't hate you in it <laughs> if you drive around in it, because it's kind of gone to the point. That if you're in a new Range Rover, people hate you. Um, yes. But it's old enough now that it sort of looks like like you're a bit down at heel and not quite. <laughs> but we love it. It's fantastic. I was driving around in snow last year. I went up to Aston Martin to talk to Marek Reichman for the book. 
and I, and it just it drove over snowdrifts. I mean, it was it's an incredibly capable car, and it's very very comfortable, and it's quite old now. But that one we love very dearly, and that's kind of our like family going anywhere car mm-hmm. it's the range rover and also around here when the weather gets really bad which it does quite regularly we've got a defender 90 which was my husband's impulse buy from mate who's a farmer who was getting rid of it and so we decided to give that a home and that's a rather lovely thing that's a 98 very agricultural and it's got a bonnet mounted spare wheel so it's, is that not the law <laughs> it's probably particularly tonic, particularly in the southwest yeah it is the most uncomfortable vehicle in the world, I have to say. You sort of sit bolt upright and your knees are up under the steering wheel. It, I don't know how anybody over five foot eight drives those cars, I have to say. But it, it's it's very charming and it does go through a muddy field very well. And we've got a, I've got a three series. So I've got a, a BMW three series from, is that one from 2006? 2007? No, 2008, which is a diesel and it works and it's a BMW saloon car, 3 Series, which they've been making for a very, very long time. And it's as good as you would expect from a company that's been making the same car over and over again for a very long time. It's very reliable and actually it's quite quick and quite fun. And it's a completely different driving position from any of the other vehicles that I've got. So it sort of feels sporty just yeah. down low makes you want to drive like a bit of a hooligan your honor <laughs> which i don't obviously no 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 of course not, of course not. <laughs> i've got an older three series so i've got a 1979 e21 which mm. is awaiting restoration which is my project that if ever i get fired or maybe redundant or somebody gives me a lot of money I'm going to restore that one back to it. It actually wasn't particularly broken when I took it off the road, but I was having carburetor issues that I could not fix. And it would stall in the middle of junctions, you know, after having been running for an hour and 20 minutes. So it was uh, fairly lethal. So I sub- Suboptimal driving It was experience. suboptimal driving conditions. And I used to have to carry a spanner with me to take the top of the carburetor off at any given opportunity. <laughs> which, again, slightly suboptimal driving conditions. So that one is under well undercover and um, awaiting some love, but it will get some love, and I know exactly what I want to do with it. Um, I know exactly what I want to do with it. It needs it needs a bit of care and attention, and I'm, I'm thinking about replacing the engine in it because, actually, I'm a bit over the carburetor. I'm a bit over that carburetor fuel injection system <laughs> with it. It really killed me a few times. I've got a Honda Inspire from 1994, I think, which was a great... That's a bit left field. It's a lovely car. That is my... So that's my that's my car, as in I'm the only one that drives it. And Ooh. I saw one in the Honda collection in Japan about three years ago and just fell in love with it. And the one I saw in the Honda collection was a kind of gangster black. Just beautiful. And it's huge, but it looks incredibly elegant because of the way that they've designed it in profile it looks like it should be really nippy it's not at all it's a vast boat of a car with a huge amount of space um, and the biggest boot i've ever seen but when you see it it looks like a kind of nippy coupe from the side and that's a very lovely thing i do i, I feel like a japanese executive from the mid 90s who's doing quite well <laughs> I love the Honda. Every time I get back to the station and I see it across the station car park, my heart just slightly skips. I have a real moment of, oh, there you are. You're better looking than anything else in this car park. 
And there's a guy there who had an old Fender who I like to think, I don't know who he is, but I like to think that he appreciates, because he always parks next to me. And so oh, yeah. to see the old Defender and the Inspire next to each other. So I think he probably appreciates that mid-90s Japanese design. And I actually met the guy who designed it, who worked on the design called Mr. Matsakazu, yeah, who worked for Honda back in the day. And he obviously thinks that that was the best era of Honda design, but he would. <laughs> Yeah, and so that's my sort of accord shape. It's accord shaped, really, the Inspire. What else have I got? Have I missed anything. So we've got the Bentley Turbo R, which is a short mm-hmm. base, obviously, so you can park it. Because <laughs> <laughs> you can't park them, they're huge. And that is an absolute beast of a car and very beautiful and very stately and goes like stink. And again... To between one petrol station and the next. It's a huge tank. It's got a huge tank. It does absolutely go like stink, that car. And it, it engenders an enormous amount of affection from people around you. In London, there, you know, you, nobody lets you out at a junction in London in a new Bentley. In the Turbo R, people are waving you through, smiling, like waving at you out of the window and smiling. I've never come across anything like it. it, it I don't know why, but it speaks to an era. But do you not think older cars engender that anyway? Yes, they do. They do to a certain extent, but it depends on the age and it depends on the meanings and the connotations. So we had, my husband had a 911, a Porsche 911 that okay. he bought back in the 80s, like in the proper loads of money, London broker, massive mm. whale tail on the back of it. And it was a, you know, it was a tits car, let's face it, back in the 80s, really horrible people bought that car and yeah. drove around in it and were quite aggressive drivers in traffic and stuff. And nobody would let you out of the junction anywhere and nobody was interested in it and just sort of sneered at it until about six years ago. And then from then, it's suddenly become beatified and people are sort of stopping you in the street and small boys are pointing. And <laughs> just because the parents are going, you know, don't touch this car. It costs more than our house and life insurance. <laughs> it wasn't one of the expensive ones. No, it wasn't one of the expensive ones. But it's sort of, I find it interesting, that sort of tipping point when the, the original meaning, the meaning when it was first released, which is, you know, there are often certain connotations around it, which, which affect how people behave to you in a public space. There is a tipping point when that changes, and it's sometimes quite unexpected, I find. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, you're right. It is uh, society again. Yeah. So it is – sound very – is that the lot? <laughs> is it... What did I do? So I've done the Bentley, the BMW, the E21, the Honda. The Wild The Defender, the L322. I've got a Massey Ferguson, but that's not a car. No, that's okay. It's got an engine. <laughs> So it's a 72 old Massey Ferguson that's covered in, it looks like a 1970s Massey Ferguson. And we use it to cut the grass in the field um, and to give children fun. Yeah. Yeah, it's a lovely thing. It's not, it's not, um, it is literally covered in moss and and rust and mould, but it's a working tractor and it's used as such. So I have a great deal of affection for that. Yeah. And that is it. Yeah, that's the lot. Okay, that's the lot. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's fabulous. Uh, Right, I'm going to move on to the quickfire questions now. And I will, I'm not making any promises. Anyone who's listened to this before will know that I fail at this miserable I'm going to try not to comment after your answers. Okay. See if I can make it through to the second question. But what currently excites you about the motoring world? Electric powertrains. Okay, why? Do you see? You fell at the first hurdle. (laughs) 
Well, that was asking a question, not me then pontificating on my opinion. You see, it's not supposed to be about my opinion. <laughs> because I think it's a it's an opportunity to redesign the platforms mainly because you can change the shape and the size and the function in in a way that. Um, that is not so easy with a traditional powertrain. And I, and I think that people, also companies are making huge investments in electrifying. And at the same time as they're doing that, they're going to redesign everything. And I think that I think that's a huge opportunity. I think the next wave of designs that we see coming out will be really interesting. Do you th- So at the minute, do you think we're at the sort of crossover period to adjust the public's mentality to this is what a car can look like in the future yes. compared to what it is now because a lot of them are here's a car that we've stuck a electric motor in with a bunch of yeah. batteries yeah but i don't think that'll last long i think that that people only need reassurance for a short period of time i, I really hope not because some of the designs are pretty grim and not exciting when you know this is the future yeah <laughs> they exactly are not, like some fast. of them do not portray the future <laughs> What currently worries you about the motion world? What currently worries me about the motion world? I, I think that there's, there's a sort of monolithic attitude to what the future looks like. And actually, I think that you always need to take into account that there are multiple and varied vehicles on the road and always will be. And that, the, you know, leaping wholesale into one version of the future denies everybody who's driving a 1989 Ford Orion the ability to run their car, I think, is, is, is unnecessary. You know, there are environmental considerations for our planet to changing to, changing to a different form of fuel, effectively. But if you run a car for its entire life cycle, you're not damaging the planet any more than scrapping it and building another one. So yeah. I think that a slightly more nuanced approach to what the world could look like is important. And and I don't want to see a world where only rich people get to drive traditional powertrains, which it looks like how it's heading at the moment. And I think that that's a, I think that that's a, a hideous future. I agree. What's been your favourite car to drive and why? How am I supposed to answer that question? I can't even make a decision about the cars that I own. It is. It is a bit that that one I do acknowledge is a bit like the "What's your favourite car?" <laughs> which is impossible question. Which you know, it, particularly if you get asked, like I've been asked at the school gate, thinking, "Well, um, what day is it? What time is it? What have yeah, I been doing?" Exactly. <laughs> My favourite car to drive, do you know what? I think at the moment it's the Bentley Turbo R because it's so surprising. It's a great, vast boat. I mean, it weighs tonnes and it's huge and it looks really stately and traditional. And then you put your foot down and it goes like stink. Absolutely. It is a surprisingly agile and compelling car. It's also very comfortable and very quiet. Okay. Uh, I'll come back to you another month or so and ask you <laughs> when the snow returns. Yeah. Well, actually, it's my Range Rover. <laughs> <laughs> I was actually toying with the L322 because I do love that car. But, yeah. <laughs> what has been your least favourite car to drive and why was that? Oh, Ford Fiesta 1.25 because there's no joy in it. There's just no joy. There's no power in it. <laughs> and there was no, And all it said was, I have given up on any expectation of excitement in my life at the age of 21, whatever, <laughs> and I'm doing this because I can afford it. That's, that's probably the least 
joy I, I've ever had from driving a car. White goods on four wheels. Yes. Yeah. Hmm. Okay, now this is probably going to be tricky, uh, and you're not allowed to open eBay, but which car would you like to own next? Ooh. Do you have a list of there are a few. ones there I'd are... like to own? <laughs> there are a few rotating through, but I'll be quite honest with you, I have, I have actually decided, I, I can't afford it, but if and when I can, I want to replace the BMW, the kind of daily runner 3 Series with a, an S90. I think they're absolutely gorgeous. Okay. Well, you're in the countryside. You could have a V90. I don't. I don't want one. <laughs> I don't want. <laughs> that would be a different proposition, though. It's a different proposition. Three series. And if you know, I, obviously, I'd have both, but because <laughs> <laughs> you don't get rid of any. <laughs> but no, it's the S90. I want an S90. I think they're absolutely spectacularly beautiful inside and out. And I particularly love the S90. But as I say, I can't afford it, so I'm going to have to wait until somebody gives up on that. (laughs) (laughs) What is your favourite road to drive on? There is a road here between me and my parents, which is called the Stockland Road, which runs between between Devon and Dorset. And it's an incredibly flat, straight stretch of road. And if you were going, if you were going to Bridport, you would usually use the dual carriageways and the motorway, and it's a soulless and depressing series of roundabouts. The Stockland Road, nobody ever uses it. I don't know why. And you can go, you can drive properly fast. You can do sort of sixty, seventy miles an hour on a country road. Good visibility and good sight ahead, so you, it's not a frightening experience. And as long as you know the road and you know where the turns are, you can. It, and the sky above you and the hedges are low on either side, so it's quite high up. So you get a beautiful view around you. Sounds Love very unsouthwesterly. Yeah, yeah, it is very unusual. It's like I mean, I think it must be an old Roman road because it's so straight, right. and it's a really sneaky kind of shortcut without having to use all of the various clogged up dual carriageway roads during the summer. Yeah. Yes, it must be particularly grim to live there in the summer. Yeah, not so much um, around here, I, but my parents, where my parents are, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I like taking the family to the southwest to show them the sights of the beautiful vistas, as there is the nine foot hedges that meet yes. over the top of the car and go look at the view <laughs> I have for you. Yeah. Here's the red earth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, what has been the most pointless optional extra you've ever experienced? I don't buy new cars. They don't really give optional extras on old cars. What's the most? Yes, but you've gone and poked around at shows. I have. Yes, I have. Pointless optional extra. I do find I do find mats in cars quite annoying. Sort of extra oh, mats so. in the footwell. But they always catch on the brake and the accelerator pedal. I, I find I find the idea of putting a mat in a footwell and a particularly chunky one with special lettering on it. I find that slightly irritating, and I always take them out. So how do you protect your carpet underneath, or do you not worry about that? I just hoover it occasionally. (laughs) I don't protect the carpet underneath. That's what it's there for. It's there for my feet. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) All right, then. That's fair enough. I've not not had that one before. Not had that one, so that's good. Uh, Who do you think I should talk to after speaking to you? I think you should talk to Amanda Stratton, who's a racing driver who I met Mm -hmm. recently in Paris, which makes me sound terribly international, doesn't it? And she is a top bird. And she gave, she was sort of comparing something that I was at 
And she's very, very good at that. But actually on a kind of one-to-one basis, I had a really enjoyable chat with her. She's not, I think she's not a dissimilar age to me, but she's from the racing. So she's, she's a racing driver effectively. Mm-hmm. And she's a very, she's a very interesting girl. Okay. I will uh, add, add her to the list of badgering and I shall commence that soon. Yeah. Thank you very much for that. <laughs> what are the best ways for people to follow what you do and everything like that? Car Design News probably and twitter i suppose i'm on twitter and where else am i yeah it's probably just twitter and car design news i mean i'm on linkedin and all that sort of stuff but i don't really understand linkedin how it works <laughs> no i'm i'm not sure i'm i'm in awe of anyone who does sort of understand it who isn't a recruiter yes if that all it seems to be is recruiting isn't it yeah but linkedin just can't seem to understand that i don't want a new job yes yeah yeah. I'll put the Car Design News website up. I'll put the Car Design News Twitter and yeah. your Twitter in the show notes. Cool. Well, it just leaves me to say thank you so much for well, giving up an incredible amount of your morning and now lunchtime <laughs> to chat to me. Uh, I've had an absolute blast and I could waffle at you for hours, <laughs> which I think is unfair. So I will, I will let you go. Now, thank you so much for coming on the show. All right. Bye. Thanks once again to Maxine for coming on Rearview and chatting with me. I hope you found our conversation as fascinating as I did. If you want to suggest someone I should ask to come on this show, please do get in touch. If you use the hashtag RearviewPod, we'll be guaranteed to see it here in Motoring Podcast Towers. To get in touch with me directly, search for Crack Windscreen on Twitter. And if you like to keep up to date with motoring news, opinions and car reviews, go try out the sister show, which is the Motoring Podcast. If you think what we do here on Rearview and the Motoring Podcast is worth some of your money, please do go and support us in our efforts. Visit motoringpodcast.com forward slash support and click the Patreon red button to be able to do that. I would also really appreciate if you could tell others about this show. I think the guests who come on here have great stories and I want as many people as possible to hear them. So until next time, that was Maxine Morland. I've been Andrew Clues and safe motoring.